This is Waves, a podcast from APTA Michigan. I'm Andy Wicks. If you're like me, you had to participate in some research when you were in PT school. And once that research was done, you might not have thought about that realm of our profession much more. But since we are an evidence-based profession, our clinical skills are driven by best practices that emerge from continuing research. So who does that work? Academics, right? Well, yes, but I would like to introduce you to Drs. Robin Linton Fisher and Andrew Harrington, two pediatric physical therapists that also are very involved in the world of clinical research. They talk about the importance of this work to continue pushing the evidence forward to help our patients. But before we begin, I want to make two announcements. First, I apologize for my atrocious audio quality in this episode. This is what happens when you don't double-check your audio inputs, folks. Thankfully, I don't talk much. It's probably better for everyone that way. Second, if you are a licensed clinician in Michigan, did you know you can get PDR credit towards license renewal by just listening to Waves episodes? It's true, you can. I'll have more info on that at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Waves Podcast. We have two very special guests today, Andrew Harrington and Robin Linton. They're here to talk with us about a very exciting research project that they're involved in. So Andrew and Robin, let's start off first, just kind of telling our listeners a little bit about your background in physical therapy, the typical, why did you become a PT and, and how did you end up in pediatrics? I decided that when I went to college, I either wanted to go to medical school or PT school because I really wanted to work with people. And I had a lot of friends that had interactions and my brother was physical therapist. So I decided a few weeks into college that it was PT for me. I did my undergrad at Alma College, ended up doing PT school at Central Michigan University. And because I had worked with kids a lot in my life, I did a lot of babysitting, took care of my cousins and nieces and nephews a lot. On one of my clinicals, I worked in a rural setting and it just so happened that my clinical instructor had a lot of kids on her caseload. And I'm like, I kind of enjoy this. So I did a clinical later on in a school and decided that pediatrics was definitely for me. I started my career in adult acute care at Butterworth Hospital, but within a year I was full-time practicing in pediatrics. So that's how I got started down the pediatric role. All right. Going into college, I knew that I enjoyed exercising, enjoyed moving, and wanted to do something within healthcare that didn't have anything to do with needles or blood. So that was kind of my <laughs> criteria. So I kind of found my way to physical therapy, didn't look back, got into PT school. I transferred from my community college, Delta College, to Central Michigan University for my undergrad and then remained at Central Michigan. While I was there, I just was finding there's really a lot of areas of physical therapy that you could go into. I had this particular vision just from, from my limited observation hours as an undergrad. You could go into geriatrics or pediatrics or sports or pelvic health, and there's just so many areas, and it kind of felt like a lot, like which direction to go. I just really, once I got into the pediatrics course, which Robin happened to teach, and seeing what pediatrics is all about. And then I actually did my final clinical rotation at 
our Helen DeVos outpatient rehab clinic in downtown Grand Rapids. Under my CIs, Rob Clinton Fisher and Jean Nielsen, who were wonderful and really just really exposing me to pediatrics. And I just felt like I went into physical therapy. I wanted to make a difference. I had that just in the back of my mind. Where could I do that personally? It just felt like pediatrics was the, the calling for me. I want to just comment that, Andrew, you, you said words that are just music to my ears about how wide and varied the physical therapy profession is. And I want to say, even just as myself, I, mean, I was a clinician for 11 years, and now I'm in, in academics. I'm still learning about, even just within pediatrics, all the different places that we can work. And from my own perspective, it was the school as obvious as, to me, that's the obvious, oh yeah, you want to work in pediatrics, you go work in a school system. Yes, that is obviously one route that we can go and do some really cool stuff. But you two work at, we've already mentioned it, Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in downtown Grand Rapids. It's just right down the street from where I work. And it's this fantastic setting. I mean, as a resource, as a, you know, a, a clinic for kids with these needs, it's, I imagine it's just an amazing place to be. It's cool that we can do all of these things in all of these cool different spaces. Absolutely. I wanted to call it a connection that I don't think I knew. So Robin, you had been Andrew's clinical instructor when he was a student. Yes, and technically a professor because I do some adjunct work at CMU as well. And I've taught the pediatrics course a few times. So yeah, we have a connection that goes way back. That's so awesome. That's exciting. And now you're working together as colleagues. Yep. We've done a lot of things together, but never a podcast. So now's the time. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're at we're adding something else to the list. So if you guys don't mind, whichever one of you feels more comfortable kind of giving us some details about your most recent collaboration outside of the podcast about the, the research project that you've been involved with. Yeah, I can start and yeah. fill in the gaps, Robin. So basically back in 2018, we both worked in an outpatient clinic for Helen Voss Outpatient Rehab and doing that. And then there's various multiple multidisciplinary clinics within the building. And one of them is the neuromuscular clinic. And at that time, we were both working in that neuromuscular clinic, seeing patients with diagnoses such as spinal muscular atrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And we were doing standardized care, start doing some functional measures with them to kind of track their progress and see if they need any equipment, see how we can help in those various ways. At that time, one of the pediatric neurologists, Dr. Jenna Krieger, was kind of filling us in on her interest in getting involved in some clinical research, which I personally didn't have experience with that previously. From PT school, I was aware of the research that I was always taught and about physical therapy and why certain interventions are, are used in PT journals and all that. And so I was familiar with research from that standpoint, but not from the clinical research standpoint. She was interested in getting involved. So that was kind of when the first research study happened. The sponsor of this company was trialing this medication and we were able to. It always starts with an investigator meeting where people from all over the world or across the country come together one centralized place, usually two to three days, and you get filled in on the protocol. 
of the research study. And then you also get filled in on which standardized measures would be used. As physical therapists, there is a group of PTs from all over these great places coming together and they refer to the PTs within clinical research as clinical evaluators. And you basically go in together to a separate place from the PIs or principal investigators, which would be like Dr. Krieger, and spend a half a day or a day purely just focused on a single standardized measure, going item by item, looking at how to score this test for this study and how it's going to be used within this study. And there's 20 items. You start item one. There's a scoring criteria where it's a zero, one, or two. You walk through what is a zero, what is a one, what is a two. You go through the entire test. It takes multiple hours. You're getting this detailed training and this test measures. And you may do this multiple times with multiple tests. And then you all go back to your home locations, home healthcare institutions, and you start recruiting the participants to be in this study. And you, as the physical therapist, would be carrying out these standardized measures. The really amazing thing about it is that they are one of the primary kind of endpoints for the study to say, sometimes called a therapeutic agent, is this medication therapeutic agent, is it effective at what the company thinks that it's supposed to do? Or is it not getting the results that they think? And we as physical therapists are being able to contribute in this kind of unique way to say yay or nay and helping it to kind of move through phase two, three, four, the different phases of a research study until it gets to commercially available. So long answer, but that's kind of where it all began and kind of parts of it. No, that's so interesting because when we think of physical therapists and research, a lot of times you're thinking about like physical therapy, evaluation and treatment, whereas this is more physical therapy, evaluation, pre and post a medical intervention. Correct. I think another thing to know, these studies seem kind of intense, but once you're in the world, it's not as bad. When we go for our initial training, that is a couple days long, but we're doing that same training. It's not quite as intense every six months to a year for those same studies. So we have to go back with that same group of people. Sometimes it's virtually and it takes us two or three hours and we go back through the test and some learnings that we've had over those six or 12 months or some things. And then at usually around a year or so, we go back together in person. Obviously COVID changed things a little bit with all of that. And we go through the same tests over and over and over again. All of the clinical evaluators we have a lot of videos and any of us could be on any video. And I would say most of the time when we're in our trainings, it's more of a group discussion about how we should and would be scoring those things just to make sure we're all on the same page because in the populations and in these studies, every point matters because that's how you're showing change in these clinical outcomes for these medications, for these families. And, and the little points might not seem like much to us, but it's probably a big change. There's a big difference between a zero, one, and a two in many cases in many of our patients. I think this is great bringing it up also because with, for a lot of PT students, when you talk about research, they're thinking the research projects that they have to complete 
prior to graduation. And for some students, and I'll lump myself into that category when I was in school, kind of thinking, well, all right, I'm going to do this project and then never think about research again. My research project in PT school is on bunions. So I can tell you a lot about bunions in the scope of the project that we did. But I think to see research in the real world, quote unquote, or maybe, you know, even just outside academia is is really interesting to see the PT's role in that. Yes, we have this pharmaceutical agent that it really is what the investigators are looking at, but they're recognizing that one way to measure its efficacy is through physical therapy objective measures. And I think it's really, really neat. I was just going to ask a question on the project that you were telling us about, Andrew, what's the time frame on something like that from start to finish, or is it even finished? I would say on average, many of the studies are lasting three to five years, but usually they're kind of being worked into multiple studies with that particular company. And then multiple of them kind of come together after that three to five year mark. And then these patients are still being followed as like a long-term follow-up where they're seen less often, maybe every six months. Um, and some of them are, could be followed for 10 to 15 years. A major reason for that is just because this is all so new within these these interventions are so new within the diagnosis of muscular atrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So they really want to see how things are changing over time. And that 2018 study was kind of the first one we got involved in. But since then, I would say our program has grown, our team has grown, and I believe we're upwards of seven, eight studies at this time. Wow. Wow. And this is, this is multiple locations across the country? Yes. Across the world. Across the yep. world. Wow. Yep. Depending on the studies, some have sites in South America, some do not, but most of the sites are in the United States and the European Union, but they are all over the world. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Helen DeVos Children's Hospital is known locally within Michigan quite well and an excellent place for care, but it's just amazing to see, see us kind of right alongside of some even larger organizations across the country, across the world. And you're like, wow, like we're, we're doing some pretty amazing things right here in West Michigan. Yeah, that's incredible. And I assume the plan is for this research project to continue. You said eight studies now. Are there many planned into the future too? Some days we get more offers than we can accept for studies. And oh, they're obviously vetted through our primary investigator, our principal investigator, and our research team. So we have to figure out if it's a study that we feel like we have participants for. That's our number one criteria. We need to know because if you take on a study that you don't have participants for, then you've just wasted the bandwidth of your research team, BI, a lot of people. This takes a lot of time to go through. So we need to make sure we have patients for what could potentially be the study and if our team um, has the bandwidth to take on a new study. So those are some considerations. But we will continue to take on new studies. Dr. Krieger is very ambitious when it comes to studies. <laughs> and so we'll continue to take on studies. But the current studies that we have have several years planned left in them right now. And sometimes they'll extend the studies beyond what's even planned in the initial. One of the studies we we're on just went to long-term follow-up after three extensions after the initial period. So wow. 
that's just kind of an example to see if they're safe and effective, how long they may go on for. But like Andrew said, time frame is three to five-ish years, and they could go a little longer, a little shorter than that. Just depends on where we get with our endpoints. It's an interesting peek into how long in medical research, like how long the process takes to go from idea to, in the case of like a, a pharmaceutical agent, from idea and trial to FDA approval. It's a long yes. haul. And I think when people kind of understand that, my gosh, it's takes takes so long. And how could you how could you stick with a project that long? But this is the way the it's it's one of those things where it's intentionally slow to make sure that not rushing something that is not effective. Even once the drugs are approved, again, like Andrew said, this this stuff is so new right now that's coming out. We're following these patients for sometimes. We have a study that wants to do a 15-year follow-up right now for safety and efficacy yeah. of the, the medication. We could be in it for the long haul. And I think also another thing is that just knowing the process, it's not just our team that goes through these numbers and these medications. We have a monitor that comes relatively frequently from wherever is sponsoring the therapeutic agent or wherever that checks through everything. And then we have an internal team that also checks through that on top of our checking and our research coordinators checking. So you probably have four to five layers of people that are making sure that what we are doing has all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed. Yeah. And I'm guessing there are many I's and many T's. <laughs> yes. And just from that standpoint, I don't know that we have mentioned this yet, but typically for a a screening or a baseline visit when we're starting with a new participant, no matter the different studies, typically Robin and I are being videotaped. And as we do the assessments with these patients and then our participants, and then that video is being seen by this team that works with the sponsor. And they're basically confirming that you are following the pro protocol and for that standardized measure and there's all of these checks and balances in place to help a medication therapeutic agent to go from concept to commercially available. Yeah. And if you can't answer this question, that's totally cool. I understand. But are a lot of the studies that you're involved with, are they looking at pharmaceutical agents or are they looking at like assistive technology or is it other whatever? I'm just curious, curious what, where you have your hands and what research pies. Most of them are therapeutic agents, but we actually have another study that's really cool that we're working on helping validate an outcome measure for patients with SMA. We have a lot of measures that are already out there for patients with SMA, but this hits a whole different population that we don't have a great grasp on good outcomes. So that's a really cool, fun one that's kind of in the physical therapy realm more than the clinical therapeutic agents realm of things. Would you guys be able to walk us through like a day, if I understand from our previous conversation, Andrew, you have a couple of days a week that are set aside as your research days. Can you, for the listeners, give kind of a flavor of what a research day looks like? Yeah, so Rob and I both are fortunate enough to have some time set aside in our given week for these research visits that are, we mentioned before, the amazing team that we have available and working on each of these studies. So 
Each study has a research coordinator and research assistants, a physical therapist, you have the primary investigator. There's a number of people involved and that team is often helping with getting patients scheduled for that initial, the screening, the baseline, but also we're typically seeing these participants, depending on the study, back every two, three, four months rolling throughout the year. So in a given week, you could have multiple studies going or visits for this study and then a different study and then a different study, which have their own respective measures. They're not all the same measures for every study. So you're kind of looking ahead and then you're just being prepared to do those standardized measures with each participant dependent on the study. And it's kind of that set aside of time. And usually each participant, it could take anywhere from like two to four hours, depending on the situation. So they are typically very long visits for the participant. We're doing multiple standardized measures and there's usually like mandatory breaks between each measure. So the participant is not you know, getting too fatigued and so that's kind of the, the given week, like those times in the day. And then once a week, we run our multidisciplinary pediatric neuromuscular clinic where we have a wonderful team of individuals, those people I mentioned, but also a genetics counselor, dietitian, orthodist, wheelchair rep, various other great people who come together to just deliver that standard of care that I mentioned kind of towards the beginning. Are you asking more like what a specific research visit might look like for a patient too? Yeah, potentially. I don't know how much detail you guys are allowed to go into, but that would be interesting just to have a sense for that. So in general, once we get through screening and baseline, the PT visits are quote unquote the most important visits because they're the primary outcome measures. One of our big goals is to see the patient at a similar time in a similar mindset at a similar fatigue level throughout the day, usually first thing in the morning. Generally, they'll arrive at our facility and one of our research coordinators will help us find them and get them to our room. And we usually will do two or three measures with each patient. So we'll have the time to do our first measure and then we take a little break with them, let them get a snack. We're not allowed to do anything study related generally in those. It's usually 10 minutes or however long they need. But we have a minimum of 10 minutes for most things just because that's going to give them brain break and a body break and whatever. So we usually just let them go and do their thing or play with toys or whatever. They're not allowed to do anything study related in that 10 minutes. And then they come back and we do another measure. And then if we have more, we'll take another break. If we don't, that will be the end. And then they'll do all of their other study related things. So other than their first couple visits, physical therapy is the first thing that they do. And honestly, I still find myself a little surprised by this. Most of the participants in our studies actually look forward to their physical therapy visits, even though it's a really long day. Oh, interesting. Do you have any insight on this to why that is? I think we're cool. I was going to say outside of just hanging out with you guys. I mean, obviously, it's their favorite appointment. <laughs> Yep. We have cool toys and cool snacks. I don't know. They just really like doing the tests and showing off and doing the cool things that <laughs> they can do. That's and I true. would, that's kind of what I was going to go towards as well, beyond our coolness. It's just, <laughs> it was just, I think, as participants, hopefully, if they 
are gaining skills. They're just very excited to come show us what they have done in the last two, three, four months since we've last seen them and look what I can do now. And it's just incredible to see the change before your eyes and then we're responsible for objectively kind of capturing that change to kind of show the effectiveness over time. That's awesome. I was thinking about that as we were talking earlier too and what a, a benefit to the community it is that this project is going on because I assume some of these participants are getting access to a medication that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. Yes, that is that is accurate. So circling back to the multidisciplinary clinic that you guys participate in, can you speak to some of the benefits that you've observed from being able to collaborate with professionals from a bunch of different backgrounds? I assume on a single case. I would say, and I say this relatively frequently, multidisciplinary care is literally the best health care that we can possibly deliver, specifically for people who have multiple complex medical needs, where we can all listen to the family's needs in the same day, have a conversation between multiple team members and come up with a really good, efficient plan to make sure that they are getting their equipment needs met, their orthotics needs met, their pulmonary needs met, their car whatever subspecialties they may need are all in the same room together, having a conversation before, after, during the time that we're having that conversation with the family and making sure we all understand that we know what they need and they understand what we're here to help them with. If we could all have healthcare delivered in this manner, oh, it would be a much better place to live. It's just, it's good stuff. In my own clinical practice, I know how much confusion it can create for people when they're hearing different things from different providers. And I just imagine that makes things much more streamlined and really serves people with complex needs like you said. That's great. I think just hearing the same message repeatedly from different healthcare professionals, but sometimes it's hard to understand what you should do or where you should go or those kinds of things. But getting that same message from multiple of us really helps kind of drive the point home as well. And we also do have a coordinator in our clinic that helps us follow up on all of these things and make sure that the family's gotten the message and that the prescriptions have happened and whatever else that we have decided on as a team, including the family that day, that that gets followed up on as well, which is very helpful. I feel like in life, there's just so many things where people would say, it would be ideal if XYZ happened or in this situation, but doing a multidisciplinary care model really seems like the most ideal situation that we could have for these patients and just logistically it just makes so much sense and is so helpful for these families from their standpoint it's not like you see cardiology today and then two days you have to go see pulmonology and the next week you see PT to all kind of check in you just get it all in this it's a little longer appointment yes but plan for it every six months and kind of have that set aside time and then get to go and then have that everyone collaborate together and it just really is ideal eliminates all that the faxing and the phone calls and the emails you just get that in the moment 
collaboration together between the providers and they can walk out knowing that their care is moving forward from the point that they came in. That's great. I am wondering if we circle back to back to when you first started your involvement in this research project and the multidisciplinary team. Has there been anything surprising that you learned or where do you feel you've grown the most since you started your involvement um, with the research project? Initially, when we started getting into this realm and this world of physical therapy, it was a little intimidating. There was a, a number of many skilled people. We went to that first investigator meeting and it was a class reunion, but you didn't go to that school. They all kind of knew each other and had done various other studies together, very specific niche of an area for physical therapy, and but that they kind of welcomed you in and kind of initially all these standardized measures are very specific and just having not been exposed to them before and then being videotaped, it, it was all kind of just like, wow, this is a lot to kind of be under this microscope. But looking back, it really has made me just a better PT overall. Dr. Krieger kindly says that these are our expert PTs in neuromuscular physical therapy. Once you've had that amount of training and hours and hours on each of these studies and the experience of doing them over time or these multiple studies, it's like you really do kind of fall into that niche and really get more comfortable at providing that care going back to the the feedback that Andrew said that we get frequently. When you first go into these environments, it's super intimidating because you're with all these people who seem like they know what they're doing and they've been through this before. And we're literally sitting in the room with the people that are the primary authors on the tests and the outcome measures that are part of this study. So they helped invent these outcome measures. So we've been through a lot of these tests and measures and things. And man, we, we don't really know what we're doing here, but we're going to try this out for a little while. But <laughs> then we've been down this road a little ways and you start to realize like, hey man, we're all in the same boat. We're all dealing with this kid that's over in the corner wanting to play with the trucks instead of doing the outcome measures that we're desperately mm -hmm. trying to do. And we all make mistakes and we all make big mistakes on start points or end points. Even the people who are doing the tests and training us and stuff. And just the humility in the room to be able to sit down and say, we're all going to mess this up. We're going to have a discussion about it. And this is a, a safe room for us to have that discussion. We can agree to disagree on some things. And you just do your best at the end of the day. And we're all going to be really close. But just those discussions and you have to take your ego out of it when you're going to these places because everybody in that room is worried about moving the forward the cause and helping get things to these patients that desperately need them to do better and get better. But we want to make sure that we're doing that appropriately and there's nobody that's above taking feedback in that room with us, which is really great. That's such a vulnerable place to be. I don't think I've been videotaped treating someone since I was in PT school. And I remember how that felt <laughs> when you were with a standardized patient. So I can only imagine this it significantly amplified those feelings. Oh, man. 
just to be videotaped doing what you do for knowing that what you do is a fine tooth comb going over it to make sure that you're follow it's one thing to just i think every clinician enjoys being able to like oh this someone's going to change things up or i'm going to just shift the plan but when you're doing research like you have a script that you have mm -hmm. to stick to and that's mm -hmm. that's hard for anybody to do i would really i don't think i would also like knowing that those cameras are watching me and they're listening and, to me <laughs> and nobody knows when they're going to use your training video either oh it's the worst they don't use easy ones. Last time we were at a training, one of Andrew's videos came up and it took me a second. Hey, that's our room. And then <laughs> I realized, hey, that's Andrew. Andrew had no notice that that was going to be put oh, up for no. discussion. Did you do a good job, Andrew? I think it worked out. I think it was good. Nice. nice. I was going to say, I feel like my stomach would just drop. And oh. <laughs> oh, no. But say, this is our example of what to do. <laughs> yes. <You're okay. laughs> If only it was that easy. It's always, what would you have done here? And this this course could be anything. And then it leads to a really, really good discussion and we all figure it out together. You talked about following the script and it's like one thing for this training. You have the manual for the study. You have the score sheet right next to you. You are in the mode of following the script, but you're recognizing that you're doing this assessment with a participant who you know, could be quite young and could really care less about your script. Yeah, they're, they're kids. <laughs> they just want to show off for you. Exactly. Like, well, look at how I can do this. Or these trucks. Yeah, whatever it is. I had a participant last week that we have coins for one of the tests that we do. And I was being videotaped and he kept taking the coins away from me or I would try and take them back from him and he would move it over here. And I'm like... Well, this is the way this one's going to be today. For situations like that, I have to imagine that happens a lot where, you know, you're like you're dealing with chaos agents. You're dealing with kids that, <laughs> that how do you balance the I have to stick to a script versus I have to deal with the reality of the situation in front of me. Meaning this, a situation where that kid keeps stealing your coins. You're just like, well, this one's just not going to count. I mean, not, how does that work? Robin and I both split our time between doing this research, working in this multidisciplinary clinic with working in outpatient, providing outpatient therapy services for kids of all ages. And I think that background really helps us kind of bridge that gap in those situations. But at the same time, it takes a big dose of patience and just kind of taking your time and recognizing that you don't have to kind of push through this item. If you want to look at that car for five minutes, like go for it. Because you don't want to just go off the deep end and kind of lose the rest of the test. Yeah. You want to yeah, yeah. kind of just keep things moving and go with the flow and kind of bring yourself back around where they don't realize that you're right back into your script. Yeah. I would agree with Andrew. I think when it gets too goofy like that, you just have to take a step back and give them a moment to do whatever they need to do. Be goofy. The same child also decided to make shadow puppets with the light that I had that we were using. This is a creative kid. I know. Sounds like a fun like, session. Nice. <laughs> and so we got the the piece of test that we wanted to do. I let him make a couple shadow puppets and I said, I promise you when we are done with this, when we're done with our video, you have however many minutes you need to make shadow puppets. We will turn the lights off and you can do all you want. And then we got back to work and it went okay. But just taking that step back, I think sometimes and letting that kid be a kid and doing that, letting them do their chaos until they're done with it. Because 
when we're doing the the exams, it's not like we don't have to have it done in 15 minutes or half an hour or an hour. We are lucky enough that we have amazing coordinators that are like, the hour to an hour and a half that you said you needed for this test is not enough time. You need two or three hours or whatever for this test. Nice. And so we've just gone with that and we have that block of time. So we have the opportunity to take that deep breath, let them get their chaos out and then get back to the test. It's amazing when you actually schedule things for what a patient needs. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Weird. I wonder if that would ever work in healthcare. Probably not. No, that could be um, a whole another podcast. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> can you guys give an example of like, because you said the outcome measure is like zero, one, two, for the most part. Can you give an example of like what the difference in those scores would be? So, in general, when you think about zero, one, or two scoring, you have a zero, which is they didn't meet the criteria pretty much at all for the example. A one would be that they met it partially or with compensation. We use that term a lot in the neuromuscular world. It just means they brought a whole lot of other muscles in than the ones that we intended them to do. Or two is that they met all of the criteria that we were looking for in that exam, if that helps. So for example, an item could be stepping up and down from a six inch box and to step up if they just do it completely, no compensations, that'd be a two. Stepping up where they have to kind of circumduct their leg and kind of vault themselves up or kind of push off their other leg, depending on the test, that could be a one. And then they go to put up their foot up on the box and they're unable to push up and step up onto the step. That would be an example of a zero. So depending on the test, that would change and get altered, but that's kind of if you boil it down. Yeah, it seems straightforward when you say it, but I can definitely see how there might be some gray areas there when you're out in the in the real world. Yes, and everything happens faster in real life. And if you were watching it happen on a video, you could slow it down or you could see it multiple times. And typically they're not supposed to have more than two or three attempts with each item. So you have to really make sure that you see what you need to see that time around. That's where they really have valued physical therapy in this role because they recognize that we have the visual analysis skills to kind of assess people's movement and kind of can generalize that or translate or translate that over to this type of an area. We are scoring these in real time. We do not ever see the videos again. They go to a database that goes wherever, and we don't see that again. We are scoring them in real time. We don't have instant replay like the NFL does. You guys would probably be pretty good referees. I would say. <laughs> I think I would make an excellent referee, but only from my couch. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Do you guys have any words of wisdom or recommendations for other physical therapists that are interested in doing clinical research at some point in their career? If you happen to be living in an area as a larger healthcare institution, those are typically the places that are going to be involved with this type of research and kind of looking into if there is a physical therapist involved in doing it and seeing if they would allow for any like job shadowing and always reference to clinicaltrials.gov. It's just interesting to see what trials are out there 
based on the location and the diagnosis and to kind of see what kind of trials are going on. If somebody presents you with opportunities, that sounds interesting, but I don't know a lot about it. Just check and talk to people. There are, I mean, there are clinical evaluator um, jobs out there now. I've actually seen a few actual postings from some places that have some clinical evaluator that is an actual job title these days. Now that there are so many research studies out there, we have a few people that we've met around the country that actually that's all they do is research in these clinical evaluator spaces. So just seeing if there is opportunity if to get into a multidisciplinary clinic, because probably there's quite a bit more research happening in those than general PT outpatient clinics and seeing what research is out there. And then just one other thing to a physical therapy student, if you have an opportunity to do a clinical rotation with someone involved in, with a physical therapist involved in clinical research, that's also a nice opportunity. Robin and I have had students that we have shared who have gotten an inside look at what this niche of a world kind of looks like. And um, so they kind of got to exposed to it in that way as well. Nice. So we're coming up on our time here. I just wanted to close with, is there anything, any final thoughts that you guys wanted to share with our audience about your work or your experience in physical therapy? Any soapboxes? Yeah. (laughs) Oh boy. I feel like I would have to say that in the end, the driving force behind any of the research that is happening is coming from the community of parents and Um, individuals with these particular diagnoses that are advocating for more research and funding and just for companies to look into researching this further to kind of help progress along the treatment for each respective condition. And it's just really amazing to kind of see, see that kind of grassroots organizations and patients and families kind of coming together to advocate for that and kind of pushing the the research agenda to move forward to help these people even more. My only thing is that I spend most of my days doing is at the end of the day or in my decision making for a patient or am I going to take this project on or am I going to do this is just saying, is this going to move my care forward? Is this going to help the patient and keeping that help in the forefront of every decision I make, both in my clinic when I'm just treating patients, in the research, um, can I devote that time? Sometimes we have opportunities in our clinic to take on extra jobs as physical therapists because we're qualified to do a lot of things. And sometimes we have to say no because that's going to take away from the other opportunities that I have that I'm good at moving patient care forward. We are only one of us. I finally figured that out right around COVID time somehow, some way. It was a catalyst for a lot of people with that type of finding that that balance. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this. This is really, really informational. I have learned quite a bit. Yeah, same here. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Happy to be with you. Thanks. Absolutely. Doctors Robin Linton Fisher and Andrew Harrington are pediatric physical therapists and clinical researchers at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their work is helping to advance treatments of children with muscular dystrophy and other conditions. They are good people.
So remember what I said about PDRs earlier? Here's the scoop. You can earn up to six PDR credits per renewal cycle by listening to, quote, professional education media related to the practice of PT, unquote. It's under activity code D on the PDR credit guidelines if you're really curious. You can earn one PDR credit per hour spent watching or listening to said media. That's like one to two episodes. And you can do it while commuting or exercising or doing the dishes or whatever you do while you listen to podcasts. To report your activity, simply fill out the physical therapist or physical therapist assistant general response form through Lara. The form and more detailed instructions are linked in the show notes. Waves is a podcast of APTA Michigan. It is co-hosted by Dr. Katherine Klein and me, Andy Wicks. It is edited and produced by Chris Shumate and me. Find us on social media at APTAMIWaves or online at www.aptami.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening and may your documentation always be done on time. <laughs>